2: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel
1: experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
3: The Science Museum in London is one of the oldest science museums in the world. It's got James Watt's steam engine. It's got Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. It's even got this mechanical clock from the 1300s. It's this kind of serious, educational, family-friendly place. But then one night every month around 6 p.m., they kick out all the kids and the vibes start to shift.
1: They're opening bars. They have this silent disco. They have lots of live experiments and they have lots of college students in.
3: This is Emma Byrne. She's a neuroscientist who was working at the museum a few years ago.
1: And I was looking for good sort of sensory neuroscience experiments that I could do as kind of demonstrations on these people that were sort of wandering through the Science Museum of a Thursday evening.
3: Her job was to teach some basic scientific concepts, but she wanted something kind of wacky so she could get the attention of all these drunk college students.
1: Shall we go and get smashed?
3: So she decided to try this weird experiment she'd heard of.
1: You get people to come up. I am Hamid. And you say, do you want to do this experiment on pain tolerance and swearing?
3: Pain tolerance and swearing. And this is the part where I should tell you that there are gonna be all kinds of swears we're not bleeping in this episode. Just a huge heads up. You think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. Anyway, here's the experiment. If you stick your hand in a bucket of water, so cold that it's actually painful, will swearing help you tolerate that pain and let you keep your hand in there longer?
1: And you've got some fairly, you know, people who've had a couple of drinks by this point and are fairly game for it. I am not fucking drunk.
3: But Emma really wanted to teach some scientific concepts here, not just try and get people swearing for shits and giggles.
1: Not fucking drunk.
3: She needed a control for her experiment, something people could say as a test while holding their hands in ice water.
1: So you asked them for a neutral word to say, describe a table. (laughs)
3: Woody. And then she asked them to pick Woody. a swear word.
1: The words I've had have ranged from the sort of usual fucks and shits. Fucking shit. To bollockses, BOLLOCKS! To slightly more colorful portmanteau words. All right, you one wumbles.
3: The students would stick their hands in the ice water twice, first to test the neutral word. Woody. Woody. And then to test the swear word. Shit! And Emma would flip a coin to see which one went first.
1: Usually if I'm doing this in a pub, I usually ask people if they think head or tails is dirtier, and then choose whichever (laughs) one of those is going to be the swear word. Arguments for both, right? Absolutely. It tells me a lot about the person I'm talking to. And that allows me to make sure that there isn't any primacy or recency effect, so you're randomizing.
3: Fuck you, science! Then Emma would lay out the rules for each ice water attempt.
1: All they're allowed to say is just the one word from that category. So, Woody. Over and over again.
3: Or, shit!
1: Until they reach the point where they feel they can't keep their hand in that water anymore.
3: The longer the students can keep their hand in the water, the higher their pain tolerance. And it turns out, swearing really fucking helps.
1: Yeah, if you were saying Woody, you might be able to keep your hand in ice water for about 90 seconds. But if you're saying shit, it's probably going to be, you know, two, two and a half minutes.
3: Shit. Okay, it's worth saying that Emma's experiment with drunk college students, it's not exactly publishable scientific work.
1: Because I'm essentially doing this in a frat house. It's just You're not getting good data here.
3: But seeing just how excited the students were about this sort of experiment, it made her kind of fall in love with the science of swearing.
1: The fact that there were scientists studying swearing just seemed to blow people's minds, and it kind of blew mine as well.
3: So she started reading every paper on swearing she could get her hands on.
1: I just fell down this research rabbit hole. You're looking at a paper and there's maybe five or six citations that you're thinking, I really want to read those. And each of those has got five or six citations. And each of those, and before you know it, you're in a pile of papers that's sort of above your head. But
3: as she dug into the research, she found that this ice water experiment doesn't just work on drunk people. It's been replicated tons of times in way more reputable settings.
1: And it is so incredibly robust.
3: So Emma started doing this experiment all over the place.
1: And everywhere I do it, I get the same result.
3: It's almost like this kind of magic incantation. Like, Abra, come motherfucking D'Abra, and poof. Increase your pain tolerance every time. But if you change just one letter of this spell, the effect vanishes.
1: There's um, a study that's been done using what we call minced oaths so things that sound like swearing but aren't so fudge sugar that kind of thing.
3: Oh
1: fudge. Doesn't work at all it has to be the real thing and the stronger you experience that swear word is being the better the painkiller it is.
0: Only I didn't say
3: fudge I said well I'm a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker motherfucker which
1: raises all these intriguing questions about what's happening when we're swearing.
3: This week on Unexplainable, how does this magic spell actually work? How can a word — a very particular kind of word — be powerful enough to reduce something as visceral as pain? So in order to understand how swearing can act like this sort of magic word that reduces pain, I feel like we got to get more basic for a second. So, so what is a swear?
1: The most common definition is that it expresses something that is considered taboo. So,
3: so something you're not allowed to say.
1: Yeah, something you're not allowed to say.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the thing that makes it such a slippery beast is that What do we mean by not allowed to? Right, right. But the fact that we tell ourselves that we shouldn't is what gives it its power. It is unlike any other part of our language. And if it weren't for the taboo part, it just wouldn't work.
3: I imagine if it relates to things you're not allowed to say, it must differ a lot across cultures or across the world.
1: Absolutely. So and please Canadian listeners, I'm so sorry for my terrible pronunciation, but words like hostie and tabernacle. So the things that are to do with the Catholic mass. Things that are to do with the communion are considered to be really offensive to the point that they turn up in French Canadian hip-hop. Whereas, if you said that in, say, you know, Paris or whatever, they'd be confused because their swearing vocabulary is a lot more like British English or American English. There's an awful lot of bodily functions.
3: A fuck, turn, fart, can't piss, shit,
2: and balls!
1: Sexual behaviour.
2: That's like trying to use a croissant as a fucking dildo. It doesn't do the job, and it
1: makes a fucking mess. Parts of the body. Dick, 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 dick,
3: dick, dick. How many dicks is that? A lot.
1: There are cultures in the world where names of diseases are hugely taboo. So I think it's Dutch things like um, typhus, typhus, and cancer, kankerlijer. Which is basically the worst. Every culture has its own particular choice of words. Coño de la madre.
0: Yeah, it means your mother's vagina.
1: Sujimpula.
0: Which means suck my dick.
1: <laughs> pula. Oh, come on. Everything that you think could be employed as a swear word probably is somewhere. And the other one I know is. Which means. Fuck your mom.
3: And all of these swears that sound totally different, they're all having this kind of impact on the brain?
1: Yeah, you need to go further inwards. So it's not the sounds that your mouth is making, it's the activity that your brain's experiencing.
3: So then what do we actually know about what's happening in the brain when we're swearing?
1: So usually in order to produce spoken words or produce signed words, there are parts of the motor cortex that are devoted to language that do that. I'm using an awful lot of areas that for about 95 percent of us are kind of on the left side of the brain. Mm -hmm. But when we're swearing, particularly when we're swearing emotively rather than if I were just to give you an example of a swear word right now, we also see activity in far more parts of our brain than most of our normal language.
3: So the idea is that swearing seems to originate, maybe, or be controlled by a part of the brain that is not language.
1: It's more like if you're familiar with the term in computer science or engineering of redundancy. Sure where there are multiple ways in which swearing can be produced and if you lose one there's still a good chance another one is still online so the amygdala gets involved starts signaling whether or not there's something truly stressful going on
3: remind me what the amygdala is again
1: oh the amygdala are like small parts of the brain that say you know oh there's something we should be alert to here so we know if you stimulate the amygdala during brain surgery that swearing is involuntarily produced. It almost acts like a kind of a go button for swearing. We know that the emotional processing parts of the brain definitely get involved so if you have a stroke on the right hand side you lose the ability to understand jokes and people who've had that kind of injury just tend to stop swearing. So it's almost like that loss of non-literal speech also takes swearing with it.
3: So it's super connected to the right side of the brain then, not just the language side?
1: Yeah, and the most astonishing thing about that is that you can have the entirety of your left hemisphere removed if you you know, have a very invasive cancer, for example, or a terrible brain injury. And it is possible to survive without the entire left hemisphere of the brain, but you're losing a lot of really important stuff, so things that control this kind of volitional language that I'm using now. However... For people who've had that left hemispherectomy, who are what's generally called aphasic, meaning without speech, they do still speak. But the things that they speak in tend to be childhood endearments and swear words. Mm. The two really big, emotionally valent forms of language that we have.
3: So, so just so we're on the same page here, people can have the entire main language hemisphere of their brain removed, and they can still
1: swear? Yeah. I think about a chap who'd lost the entirety of his left hemisphere, mm-hmm. could no longer produce volitional language, was doing the test that he was put through by the physicians who were dealing with him. So we would show him things like a picture of a watch, and they would painstakingly record... How long it took to make any kind of sound whatsoever. So watch. No, can't do it. Give me the next one. All right, chair, similar thing. Bed, similar thing. Picture of Ronald Reagan. And it says in this paper, the patient responded with a surprisingly fluent production of swearing. (laughs) Don't write down what it was. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's rough. What is the picture that would
3: elicit swears that it's Ronald Reagan? It was
1: Ronald Reagan. Oh, my God. You know, we have no idea if he said fucking asshole or whatever. Or
3: fucking great president, right? Or
1: fucking great. Well, he might have struggled with great and president. Right. But yeah, like either. He might have been
3: the biggest Reagan fan ever. He
1: might have been the biggest Reagan fan. It might have been fuck yeah. It could have been fuck him. (laughs) We don't know. (laughs)
3: So we know swearing is connected to way more parts of the brain than normal language is, that it's in touch with our emotions in this unique way, but how exactly does it reduce pain?
1: We're still trying to figure this out in detail, but there's a lot that we still don't know. We'll get into all of that when we're
3: back. Support for the show comes from ZocDoc. When was the last time you got a physical? I know it's probably stressing you out just to hear that question. You know you need to get one, but where do you find a doctor who even does a physical? And how do you know if they take your insurance? And aren't most doctors booked up like months in advance? It can seem intimidating, but the answers to those questions are easier than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. You can look through tens of thousands of doctors, all with patient reviews, so you can get a clear sense of who's going to be taking care of your health. And once you find the doctor you want, you can book them right in the app. No waiting on hold to get through to a receptionist. You can go to ZocDoc.com slash unexplainable and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Zocdoc.com slash unexplainable. ZocDoc.com slash unexplainable.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
3: Okay, so Emma, we know that swearing isn't like normal language, that, you know, you can lose the entire half of your brain that controls language and you can still swear, especially if you're looking at pictures of Ronald Reagan. So how do we get from swearing being this special kind of word to actually impacting pain?
1: Okay, so when the swearing is either generated in an emotional place or registers in an emotional place, heart rates go up. Pupils tend to constrict, your hands tend to get a bit more sweaty. All of the things that happen when we know that we're getting prepared for some sort of emotional event, it could be that it's helping us to withstand pain or to have more stamina because we're getting activation in those exact parts of our body that previously responded to the sound of a saber-toothed tiger growling you know Mm -hmm. here's this sound that's very emotive so even though the word fuck it's the same sound whether or not i'm sort of saying fuck that guy fuck him or oh that's fucking brilliant your brain and more importantly your body the entire sort of distributed sense of I'm ready to fight or to flee is responding differently
3: so the idea here is that like saying fuck is almost like pressing the button on your most basic primal nervous system to say like get ready it's like you're being prepared to fight
1: it really seems to yeah Yeah. so because of how Slowly, the body creates and then disposes of things like adrenaline and cortisol. It's very hard to get the kind of rapid snapshots of whether or not, you know, it's boosting adrenaline and so on. But all of the proxy variables for adrenaline, like pupillary response or sweaty palms or fast heart rate, suggest that, yeah, this cascade of neurotransmitters and of hormones and of the activation even of the rate of our breathing all gets us ready to say, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, I'm ready for it.
3: Okay, so one idea is that we have a higher pain tolerance and fight-or-flight situations, and this is kind of triggering that. Mm -hmm. What are some other potential hypotheses for how swearing might reduce pain?
1: So one of the other competing hypotheses is the fact that because swearing is so redundant, so distributed in the brain, that it's just taking more effort and is therefore far more distracting. That if you've got limited cognitive availability to think, you know, am I in pain maybe that's just really distracting. Hmm. And then the other one is that actually by swearing, we may not be genning up the parasympathetic nervous system. What we might be doing is allowing ourselves to siphon off some of that activation to sort of say, look, I've, I've put some of this bad load into the world.
3: So like letting off steam, just kind of coping with stressful situations?
1: Yeah, sort of going and punching a punch bag for a long time. Mm -hmm. So the swearing either might gen us up and bring this response, or it might allow us to pass through that more quickly.
3: So if we take what we know about the different ways swears might be impacting our pain perception, and we bring in the thing you mentioned at the top, that we don't get this effect with these sort of semi-swears like fudgesicle, mm-hmm. I imagine I'd only be getting the effect of pain reduction if I said something that I understood as a swear, right? Like if I said a swear in a language I'm not fluent in, like pendejo or gay cock and afanyam or something like that, I imagine I'm not gonna get that pain effect.
1: Yeah, and we know thanks to uh, some research on people who become bilingual either before adolescence or after adolescence, If you had been bilingual from birth or in your teens and pendejo had been something that you'd heard among your peers growing up, you would have imbibed this sort of emotional link between the word, the sound, the feel of it in your own mouth and the emotional taboo response and the feeling in your body. Hmm. It's the fact that what is happening is happening so deeply in the brain and it's happening because of the way our relationships between sounds, movements, and feelings have been idiosyncratically laid down in our late adolescence. That, yeah, you can't prescribe a particular swear word for everyone.
3: Okay, so the idea here is that for a swear of any language to get your power, you have to be introduced to it and learn that you're not allowed to say it very, very early on. It's got to, like, get... Carried into your brain somehow. Is that the idea?
1: It does. And it gets linked with the emotions in your brain by seeing the emotional response that other people have. Hmm. So, for example, for me, the word twat, I can still feel the smack around the back of my head that I got when I first used that word. So if
3: we zoom out a little bit on this overall question of swearing and pain, what are some of the biggest unknowns...
1: We still don't know whether or not there's a dose effect or whether or not Hmm. the fact that you swear a lot, whether that has much impact on the way in which it affects you when you need it for painkilling. The two competing hypotheses are that if you swear a lot, then you're going to become habituated to it, like some painkilling drugs And obviously, the competing hypothesis to that is just, no, that doesn't happen. And so far, the the jury seems to be out. The data uh, that have been collected point in either direction.
3: And is there anything that makes that particularly hard to figure out or that makes this question of swearing and pain hard to study in general?
1: Partly, it's the fact that it is so idiosyncratic. Each and every one of us has our own unique relationship between words and emotions. So that makes it really hard because you can't sort of isolate it. And the other thing is, is that swearing is usually relational. I mean, in the cold water task, you're kind of taking away as much of the relationship as possible. You're swearing, if at anything, it's at the cold water. But when swearing happens in the world, we do it as a communicative act. We do it because we want to elicit an emotional response from another person. So that then adds another layer of complexity. You've got what's going on in the brain and the body of the swearer. What's going on in the brain of the body of the hearer? You can never just point at a word and go, we can understand that swear word. Each individual swearing act
3: is essentially
1: its own thing.
3: So then this takes us way beyond just killing pain, right?
1: I mean, it has this painkilling ability, but it also sends social messages to other people. And some of the ways in which those social messages work is by altering the person who's listening to you's emotional nervous system. I still remember my daughter's first swear word. We got on holiday and the place was absolute bedlam. And of course, my daughter was at toddling stage and wanted to run around. And so I said, look, I know we don't use a high chair at home, but just for now, I'll put you in this high chair because you absolutely have to stay put. Mm-hmm. We'll have our dinner and then we'll go outside. And we'll run around when you're finished. And she sat there eating. And then all of a sudden, I'm talking to my husband, I think, and I heard this little voice very clearly beside me going, Mummy. Get me out of this fucking high chair. (laughs) And I thought, do you know what, I'm fine with this, because three months ago, that would have been that kind of back-arching, food-throwing, screaming, you know, like the projectile-weeping kind of tantrum. And it had turned into this powerful word that could get my emotional attention and say, look, you know, I'm this pissed off with this high chair. I have got to get out of it without having the full blown meltdown, which is glorious. I I was very, very happy with that. Yeah. It seems functionally very helpful to have something that goes between I'm going to express that I'm a little bit frustrated with this and actually full on, you know, trying to choke a bitch. <laughs> and then having this register that's in between the two, that swearing register is incredibly useful. <laughs>
3: If you want to learn more about the science of swearing, check out Emma Byrne's excellent book. It's called Swearing is Good for You. This episode was produced by me, Noam Hassenfeld. We had editing from Brian Resnick and Jorge Just, with help from Meredith Hodenott, who also manages our team, mixing and sound design from Erica Huang, fact checking from Angeli Mercado, music from me Christian Ayala is spinning the globe, Manding Wen is crossing the country. And Bird Pinkerton turned to the Doctopus, who handed her a small, blinking device. This is a beak beeper, said the Doctopus. If there's a beak nearby, you won't miss it. Just remember, be careful of the birds. If you're looking for transcripts of our show, we've got a link in the show notes. And if you have thoughts about this episode or ideas for the show, please email us. We're at unexplainable at vox.com. We'd also love it if you left us a review or a rating. This podcast and all of Vox is free, in part because of gifts from our readers and listeners. You can go to vox.com slash give to give today. Unexplainable is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back next week. One quick thing before we go. There's this one last bit of research that Emma did on swearing that I just love. It really gets at just how many different things swears can communicate. And it does it in what I think is the funniest possible way.
1: During the Soccer World Cup, we looked at people swearing on Twitter and we found something (laughs) that we called the fuck shit ratio. (laughs) So fuck goes up whenever anything happens for your team. It could be scoring. It could be conceding a goal. It could be an injury. But when shit goes up at the same time, you know it's negative. So by looking at the way in which, for a given hashtag, the frequency of fuck has gone up, but shit hasn't, you can build these predictive models that will basically flag for you, saying, I think something good's happened for this team.
3: Fucking what the fucking fuck? Who the fuck Fuck this fucking... How did you two fucking fucks? Fuck! Bullets...
0: Certainly illustrates the diversity of the (laughs) world.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to
2: do it.